everyone, and I hope you are doing well. We are going to continue reading from Peter Pan by J.M. Barrie, and we are on chapter two, and it's entitled The Shadow. Mrs. Darling screamed as if in an answer to a bell the door opened, and Nana entered, returned from her evening out. She growled and sprang at the boy, who leapt lightly through the window. Again Mrs. Darling screamed, this time in distress for him, for she thought he was killed, and she ran down into the street to look for his little body, but it was not there. And she looked up, and in the black night she could see nothing but what she thought was a shooting star. She returned to the nursery and found Nana with something in her mouth which proved to be the boy's shadow. As he leapt at the window, Nana had closed it quickly, too late to catch him, but his shadow had not time to get out. Slam went the window and snapped it off. You may be sure Mrs. Darling examined the shadow carefully, but it was quite the ordinary kind. Nana had no doubt of what the best thing to do with this shadow. She hung it out at the window, meaning he is sure to come back for it. Let us put it where he can get it easily without disturbing the children. But unfortunately, Mrs. Darling could not leave it hanging out at the window. It looked so like the washing and lowered the whole tone of the house. She thought of showing it to Mr. Darling, but he was totting up winter great coats for John and Michael, with a wet towel around his head to keep his brain clear, and it seemed a shame to trouble him. Besides, she knew exactly what he would say. It all comes of having a dog for a nurse. She decided to roll the shadow up and put it away carefully in a drawer until a fitting opportunity came for telling her husband. Ah, me. The opportunity came a week later, on that never-to-be-forgotten Friday. Of course, it was a Friday. I ought to have been specially careful on a Friday, she used to say afterwards to her husband, while perhaps Nana was on the other side of her holding her hand. No, no, Mr. Darling always said. I'm responsible for it all. I, George Darling, did it. Mia copa, mia copa. He had had a classical education. They sat thus night after night, recalling that fatal Friday, till every detail of it was stamped on their brains and came through on the other side like the faces on a bad coinage. If only I had not accepted that invitation to dine at twenty-seven, Mrs. Darling said. If only I had not poured my medicine into Nana's bowl, said Mr. Darling. If only I had pretended to like medicine, was what Nana's eyes said. My liking for parties, George. My fatal gift of humor, dearest. My touchiness about trifles, dear master and mistress. Then one or more of them would break down together. Nana at the thought, it's true, it's true. They ought not to have had a dog for a nurse. Many a time it was Mr. Darling who put the handkerchief to Nana's eyes. That fiend, Mr. Darling would cry, and Nana's bark was the echo of it. But Mrs. Darling never unbraided Peter. There was nothing in the right-hand corner of her mouth that wanted her not to call Peter names. They would sit there in the empty nursery, recalling fondly every smallest detail of that dreadful evening. It had become so uneventfully, so precisely, like a hundred other evenings, with Nana putting on the water for Michael's bath and carrying him to it on her back. I won't go to bed, he had shouted, like one who still believed that he had the last word on the subject. I won't, I won't. Nana, it isn't six o'clock yet. Oh dear, oh dear, I shan't love you any more, Nana. I tell you I won't be bathed. I won't, I won't. Then Mrs. Darling had come in, wearing her white evening gown. She had dressed early because Wendy so loved to see her in her evening gown with the necklace that George had given her. She was wearing Wendy's bracelet on her arm. She had asked for the loan of it. 
Wendy loved to lend her bracelet to her mother. She had found her two older children playing at being herself and father on the occasion of Wendy's birth, and John was saying, I'm happy to inform you, Mrs. Darling, that you are now a mother, in just such a tone as Mr. Darling himself may have used on the real occasion. Wendy had danced with joy, just as the real Mrs. Darling must have done. Then John was born. With the extra pomp that he had conceived due to the birth of a male, and Michael came from his bath to ask to be born also, but John said brutally that they did not want any more. Michael had nearly cried. Nobody wants me, he said, and of course the lady in the evening dress could not stand that. I do, she said. I so want a third child. Boy or girl, asked Michael, not too hopefully. Boy. Then he had left into her arms such a little thing for Mr. and Mrs. Darling and Nana to recall now, but so little of that was to be Michael's last night in the nursery. They go on with their recollections. It was then that I rushed in like a tornado, wasn't it? Mr. Darling would say, scorning himself, and indeed he had been like a tornado. Perhaps there was some excuse for him. He, too, had been dressing for the party, and all had gone well until he came to his tie. It is an astounding thing to have to tell, but this man, though, he knew about stocks and shares, had no real mastery of his tie. Sometimes the thing yielded to him without a contest, but there were occasions when it would have been better for the house if he had swallowed his pride and used a made-up tie. This was such an occasion. He came rushing into the nursery with the crumpled little brood of a tie in his hand. Why, what is the matter, father dear? Matter, he yelled. He really yelled. This tie, it will not tie. He became dangerously sarcastic. Not round my neck, round the bedpost. Oh, yes, twenty times have I made it up round the bedpost, but round my neck, no. Oh, dear, begs to be excused. He thought Mrs. Darling was not sufficiently impressed, and he went on sternly. I warn you of this, mother, that unless this tie is round my neck, we don't go out to dinner tonight. And if I don't go out to dinner tonight, I never go to the office again. And if I don't go to the office again, you and I starve, and our children will be flung into the streets. Even then, Mr. Darling was placid. Let me try, dear, she said, and indeed, that was what he had come to ask her to do, and with her nice cool hands, she tied his tie for him, while the children stood around to see their fate decided. Some men have resented her being able to do it so easily, but Mr. Darling had far too fine a nature for that. He thanked her carelessly, at once forgot his rage, and in another moment was dancing around the room with Michael on his back. How wildly we romped, says Mrs. Darling, now recalling it. Our last romp, Mr. Darling groaned. Oh, George, do you remember Michael suddenly said to me? How did you get to know me, mother? I remember. They were rather sweet, don't you think, George? And they were ours, ours, and now they're gone. The romp had ended with the appearance of Nana, and most unluckily Mr. Darling collided against her, covering his trousers with hairs. They were not only new trousers, but they were the first he had ever had with braid on them, and he had to bite his lip to prevent the tears coming. Of course Mrs. Darling brushed him, but he had began to talk again about its being a mistake to have a dog for a nurse. George, Nana is a treasure. No doubt, but I have an uneasy feeling at time that she looks upon the children as puppies. Oh no, dear one, I feel sure she, she knows they have souls. I wonder, Mr. Darling said thoughtfully, I wonder. It was an opportunity, his wife felt, for telling him about the boy. At first he pooh-poohed the story but he became thoughtful whenever she showed him the shadow. 
It is nobody I know, he said, examining it carefully, but it does look a scoundrel. We were still discussing it, you remember, says Mr. Darling, when Nana came in with Michael's medicine. You will never carry the bottle in your mouth again, Nana, and it is all my fault. Strong man though he was, there is no doubt that he had behaved rather foolishly over the medicine. If he had a weakness, it was for thinking that all his life he had taken medicine boldly. And so now, when Michael dodged the spoon in Nana's mouth, he had said reprovingly, Be a man, Michael. Won't, won't, Michael cried naughtily. Mrs. Darling left the room to get a chocolate for him, and Mr. Darling thought this showed want of firmness. Mother, don't pan for him, he called after her. Michael, when I was your age, I took medicine without a murmur, he said. Thank you, kind parents, for giving me bottles to make me well. He really thought this was true, and Wendy, who was now in her nightgown, believed it also. And she said to encourage Michael, That medicine you sometimes take, Father, is much nastier, isn't it? Ever so much nastier, Mr. Darling said bravely, and I would take it now as an example to you, Michael, if I hadn't lost the bottle. He had not exactly lost it. He had climbed in the dead of night to the top of the wardrobe and hidden it there. What he did not know was that the faithful Liza had found it and put it back on his washstand. I know where it is, Father, Wendy cried, always glad to be of service. I'll bring it, and she was off before he could stop her. Immediately his spirits sank in the strangest way. John, he said, shuddering, it's most beastly stuff. It's that nasty, sticky, sweet kind. It will soon be over, Father, John said cheerily, and then in rushed Wendy with the medicine in a glass. I have been as quick as I could, she panted. She had, she had been wonderfully quick, her father retorted with a vindictive politeness that was quite thrown away upon her. Michael first, he said doggedly. Father first, said Michael, who was of a suspicious nature. I shall be sick, you know, Mr. Darling said threateningly. Come on, father, said John. Hold your tongue, John, his father rapped out. Wendy was quite puzzled. I thought you took it quite easily, father. That is not the point, he retorted. The point is that there is more in my glass than in Michael's spoon. His proud heart was nearly bursting. And it isn't fair. I would say, though it were with my last breath, it isn't fair. Father, I'm waiting, said Michael coldly. It's all very well to you, you're waiting. So am I waiting. Father's a cowardly custard. So are you a cowardly custard. I'm not frightened. Neither am I frightened. Well, then take it. Well, then you take it. Wendy had a splendid idea. Why not both take it at the same time? Certainly, said Mr. Darling. Are you ready, Michael? Wendy gave the words. One, two, three. And Michael took his medicine, but Mr. Darling slipped his behind his back. There was a yell of rage from Michael. And, oh, father, Wendy exclaimed. What do you mean by, oh, father, Mr. Darling demanded. Stop that row, Michael. I meant to take mine, but I, I missed it. It was dreadful the way all the three were looking at him, just as if they did not admire him. Look here, all of you, he said entreatingly. As soon as Nana had gone into the bathroom, I have just thought of a splendid joke. I shall pour my medicine into Nana's bowl, and she will drink it, thinking that it's milk. Nana, good dog, he said, patting her. I have put a little milk into your bowl, Nana. Nana wagged her tail, ran to the medicine, and began lapping it. Then she gave Mr. Darling such a look. Not an angry look. 
she showed him the great red tear that makes us so sorry for noble dogs and crept into her kennel. Mr. Darling was frightfully ashamed of himself, but he would not give in. In a horrid silence, Mrs. Darling smelt the bowl. Oh, George, she said, it's your medicine. It was only a joke, he roared, while she comforted her boys and Wendy hugged Nana. Much good, he said bitterly. My wearing myself to the bone trying to be funny in this house. And still Wendy hugged Nana. That's right, he shouted. Coddle her. Nobody coddles me. Oh dear, no, I'm the breadwinner. Why should I be coddled? Why, why, why? George, Mrs. Darling entreated him. Not so loud. The servants will hear you. Somehow they had gotten to the way of calling Liza the servants. Let them, he answered recklessly, bring in the whole world. But I refused to allow that dog to lord it in my nursery for an hour longer. The children wept, and Nana ran to him beseechingly, but he waved her back. He felt he was a strong man again. In vain, in vain, he cried. The proper place for you is the yard, and there you are to be tied up this instant. George, George, Mrs. Darling whispered. Remember what I told you about that boy? Alas, he would not listen. He was determined to show who was master in that house, and when commands would not draw Nana from the kennel, he lured her out with one honey-eyed words, and seizingly her roughly dragged her from the nursery. He was ashamed of himself, and yet he did it. It was all owing to his affection nature which craved for admiration. When he had tied her up in the backyard, the wretched father went and sat in the passage with his knuckles in to his eyes. In the meantime, Mrs. Darling had put the children to bed in unwanted silence and lit their nightlights. They could hear Nana barking, and John whimpered. It is because he is chaining her up in the yard. But Wendy was wiser. That is not Nana's unhappy bark, she said, little guessing what was about to happen. That is her bark when she smells danger. Danger. Are you sure, Wendy? Oh, yes. Mrs. Darling quivered and went to the window. It was securely fastened. She looked out, and the night was peppered with stars. They were crowding round the house as if curious to see what was to take place, but she did not notice this, nor that one or two of the smaller ones winked at her. Yet a nameless fear clutched at her heart and made her cry. Oh, how I wish that I wasn't going to a party tonight. Even Michael, already half asleep, knew that she was perturbed, and he asked, Can anything harm us, Mother, after the night lights are lit? Nothing precious, she said. They are the eyes a mother leaves behind her to guard her children. She went from bed to bed, singing enchantments over them, and little Michael flung his arms round her. Mother, he cried, I'm glad of you. They were the last words she was to hear from him for a long time. Number 27 was only a few yards distant, but there had been a slight fall of snow, and father and Mrs. Mother Darling picked their way over it deftly not to soil their shoes. They were already the only persons in the street, and all the stars were watching them. Stars are beautiful, but they may not take an active part in anything. They must just look on forever. It is a punishment put on them for something they did so long ago that no star knows what it was. So the older ones have been glassy-eyed and seldom speak. Winking is their star language, but the little ones still wonder. They are not really friendly to Peter, who had a mischievous way of stealing up behind them and trying to blow them out, but they were so fond of fun that they were on his side tonight and anxious to get the grown-ups out of the way. So as soon as the door of 27 closed on Mr. and Mrs. Darling, there was a commotion in the firmament, and the smallest of all the stars in the Milky Way screamed out, 
Now Peter. Chapter 3. Come away, come away. For a moment after Mr. and Mrs. Darling left the house, the night lights by the beds of the three children continued to burn clearly. They were awfully nice little night lights, and one cannot help wishing that they could have kept awake to see Peter. But Wendy's light blinked and gave such a yawn that the other two yawned also, and before they could close their mouths, all three went out. There was another light in the room now, a thousand times brighter than the night lights, and in the time we have taken to say this, it has been in all the drawers in the nursery, looking for Peter's shadow. Rummaged the wardrobe and turned every pocket inside out. It was not really a light. It made this light by flashing about so quickly, but when it came to rest for a second, you saw that it was a fairy. No longer than your hand, but still growing. It was a girl called Tinkerbell, exquisitely gowned in a skeleton leaf, cut low and square, through which her figure could be seen to the best advantage. She was slightly unkind to a bond point, a plump hourglass figure. A moment after the fairy's entrance, the window was blown open by the breathing of the little stars, and Peter dropped in. He had carried Tinkerbell part of the way, and his hand was still messy with the fairy dust. Tinkerbell, he called softly, after making sure that the children were asleep. Tink, where are you? She was in a jug for the moment, and liking it extremely, she had never been in a jug before. Oh, do you come out of that jug and you tell me, do you know where they put my shadow? The loveliest tinkle as of golden bells answered him. It is the fairy language. Your ordinary children can never hear it, but if you were to hear it, you would know that you had heard it once before. Tink said that the shadow was in the big box. She meant the chest of drawers, and Peter jumped at the drawers, scattering their contents to the floor with both hands, as King's toss happenstance to the ground. In a moment, he had recovered his shadow, and in his delight, he forgot that he had shut Tinkerbell up in the drawer. If he thought at all, but I don't believe he ever thought, it was that he and his shadow, when brought near each other, would join like drops of water, and when they did not, he was appalled. He tried to stick it with soap from the bathroom, but that also failed. A shudder passed through Peter, and he sat on the floor and cried. His sobs woke Wendy, and she sat up in bed. She was not alarmed to see a stranger crying on the nursery floor. She was only pleasantly interested. Boy, she said courteously, why are you crying? Peter could be exceedingly polite also, having learned the grand manner at fairy ceremonies, and he rose and bowed to her beautifully. She was much pleased and bowed beautifully to him from the bed. What's your name? he asked. Wendy Moira Angela Darling, she replied with some satisfaction. What is your name? Peter Pan. She was already sure that he must be Peter, but it did seem a comparatively short name. Is that all? Yes, he said rather sharply. He felt for the first time that it was a shortish name. I'm so sorry, said Wendy Moira Angela. It doesn't matter, Peter gulped. She asked where he lived. Second to the right, said Peter, and then straight on till morning. What a funny address. Peter had a sinking. For the first time, he felt that perhaps it was a funny address. No, it isn't, he said. I mean, Wendy said nicely, remembering that she was hostess. Is that what they put on the letters? He wished she had not mentioned letters. Don't get any letters, he said contemptuously. But your mother gets letters. 
don't have a mother, he said. Not only had he no mother, but he had not the slightest desire to have one. He thought them very overrated persons. Wendy, however, felt at once that she was in the presence of a tragedy. Oh, Peter, no wonder you were crying, she said, and got out of bed and ran to him. I wasn't crying about mothers, he said rather indignantly. I was crying because I can't get my shadow to stick on. Besides, I wasn't crying. It has come off? Yes. Then Wendy saw the shadow on the floor looking so draggled, and she was frightfully sorry for Peter. How awful, she said, but she could not help smiling when she saw that he had been trying to stick it on with soap. How exactly like a boy. Fortunately, she knew at once what to do. It must be sewn on, she said, just a little patronizingly. What's sewn? he asked. You're dreadfully ignorant. No, I'm not. But she was exulting in his ignorance. I shall sew it on for you, my little man, she said. Though he was tall as herself, and she got out her housewife's sewing bag and sewed the shadow onto Peter's foot. I dare say it will hurt a little, she warned him. Oh, I shan't cry, said Peter. He was already of the opinion that he never cried in his life, and he clenched his teeth and did not cry, and soon his shadow was behaving properly, though still a little creased. Perhaps I should have ironed it, Wendy said thoughtfully, but Peter, boylike, was indifferent to appearances, and he was now jumping about in the wildest glee. Alas, he had already forgotten that he owed his bliss to Whitney. He thought he had attached the shadow himself. How clever I am, he crowed rapturously. Oh, the cleverness of me. It is humiliating to have to confess that this conceit of Peter was one of his most fascinating qualities. To put it with brutal frankness, there never was a cockier boy. But for the moment, Wendy was shocked. You conceited Brackert, she exclaimed with frightful sarcasm. Of course, I did nothing. You did a little, Peter said carelessly and continued to dance. A little, she replied with haughtier pride. If I'm no use, I can at least withdraw, and she sprang in the most dignified way into bed and covered her face with the blankets. To induce her to look up, he pretended to be going away, and when this failed, he sat on the end of the bed and tapped her gently with his foot. Wendy, he said, don't withdraw. I can't help crowing, Wendy, when I'm pleased with myself. Still, she would not look up, though she was listening eagerly. Wendy, he continued, in a voice that no woman has ever yet been able to resist. Wendy, one girl is more used than twenty boys. Now Wendy was every inch a woman, though there were not very many inches, and she peeped out of the bedclothes. Do you really think so, Peter? Yes, I do. I think it's perfectly sweet of you, she declared, and I'll get up again and she sat with him on the side of the bed. She also said she would give him a kiss if he liked, but Peter did not know what she meant, and he held out his hand expectantly. Surely you know what a kiss is, she asked aghast. I shall know when you give it to me, he replied stiffly, and not to hurt his feelings, she gave him a thimble. Now, said he, shall I give you a kiss? And she replied with a slight primness. If you please. She made herself rather cheap by inclining her face toward him, but he merely dropped an acorn button into her hand, so she slowly returned her face to where it had been before, and said nicely that she would wear his kiss on the chain around her neck. It was lucky that she did put it on that chain, for it was afterwards to save her life. 
When people in our set are introduced, it is customary for them to ask each other's age. And so Wendy, who always liked to do the correct thing, asked Peter how old he was. It was not really a happy question to ask him. It was like an examination paper that asked grammar when what you want to be asked is kings of England. I don't know, he replied uneasily, but I am quite young. He really knew nothing about it. He had merely suspicions, but he said at a venture, Wendy, I ran away the day I was born. Wendy was quite surprised but interested, and she indicated in a charming drawing room manner by a touch of her nightgown that he could sit nearer her. It was because I heard mother and father, he explained in a low voice, talking about what I was to be when I became a man. He was extraordinarily agitated now. I don't want ever to be a man, he said with passion. I want always to be a little boy and to have fun. So I ran away to Kensington Gardens, and I lived a long, long time among the fairies. She gave him a look of the most intense admiration, and he thought it was because he had run away, but it was really because he knew fairies. Wendy had lived such a home life to know fairies struck her as a quite delightful. She poured out questions about them to his surprise, for they were rather a nuisance to him, getting in his way and so on, and indeed he sometimes had to give them a hiding. Still, he liked them on the whole, and he told her about the beginning of fairies. You see, Wendy, when the first baby laughed for the first time, its laugh broke into a thousand pieces, and they all went skipping about, and that was the beginning of fairies. Tedious talk this, but being a stay-at-home, she liked it. And so he went on good-naturedly. There ought to be one fairy for every boy and girl. Ought to be, isn't there? No. You see, children know such a lot now. They soon don't believe in fairies. And every time a child says, I don't believe in fairies, there's a fairy somewhere that falls down dead. Really, he thought, they had now talked enough about fairies, and it struck him that Tinkerbell was keeping very quiet. I can't think where she's gone to, he said, rising, and he called Tink by name. Wendy's heart went flutter with a sudden thrill. Peter, she cried, clutching him, you don't mean to tell me that there's a fairy in this room. She was here just now, he said impatiently. You don't hear her, do you? And they both listened. The only sound I hear, said Wendy, is like a tinkle of bells. Well, that's Tink. That's the fairy language. I think I hear her, too. The sound came from the chest of drawers, and Peter made a merry face. No one could ever look quite so merry as Peter, and the loveliest of gurgles was his laugh. He had his first laugh still. Wendy, he whispered gleefully, I do believe I shut her up in the drawer. He let poor Tink out of the drawer, and she flew about the nursery, screaming with fury. You shouldn't say such things, Peter retorted. Of course, I'm very sorry, but how could I know you were in the drawer? Wendy was not listening to him. Oh, Peter, she cried, if she would only stand still and let me see her. They hardly ever stand still, he said, but for one moment, Wendy saw the romantic figure come to rest on the cuckoo clock. Oh, the lovely, she cried, though Tink's face was still distorted with passion. Tink, said Peter amiably, this lady says she wishes you were her fairy. Tinkerbell answered insolently. What does she say, Peter? He had to translate. She's not very polite. She says you are a great, huge, ugly girl, and that she's my fairy. He tried to argue with Tink. 
you know you can't be my fairy, Tink, because I am a gentleman and you are a lady. To this, Tink replied in these words, you silly ass, and disappeared into the bathroom. She is quite a common fairy, Peter explained apologetically. She is called Tinkerbell because she mends the pots and kettles. Tinker equals tin worker, similar to cinder plus L to get Cinderella. They were together in the armchair by this time, and Wendy plied with more questions. If you don't live in Kensington Gardens now, well, sometimes I do still, but where do you live mostly now? With the Lost Boys. Well, who are they? They are children who fall out of their parameters when the nurse is looking the other way. If they are not claimed in seven days, they are sent far away to the Neverland to defray expenses. I'm captain. What fun that must be. Yes, said cunning Peter, but we are rather lonely. You see, we have no female companionship. Are none of the others girls? Oh, no. Girls, you know, are much too clever to fall out of their prams. This flattered Wendy immensely. I think, she said, it is perfectly lovely the way you talk about girls. John there just despises us. For reply, Peter rose and kicked John out of bed, blankets and all, one kick. This seemed to Wendy rather forward for a first meeting, and she told him with spirit that he was not captain in her house. However, John continued to sleep so placidly on the floor that she allowed him to remain there. And I know you meant to be kind, she said, relenting, so you may give me a kiss. For the moment, she had forgotten his ignorance about kisses. I thought you would want it back, he said a little bitterly, and offered to return her the thimble. Oh, dear, said the nice Wendy, I don't mean a kiss, I mean a thimble. What's that? It's like this, and she kissed him. Funny, said Peter gravely, now shall I give you a thimble? If you wish to, said Wendy, keeping her head erect this time. Peter thimbled before her, and almost immensely she screeched, What is it, Wendy? It was exactly as if someone were pulling my hair. That must have been Tink. I never knew her so naughty before. And indeed, Tink was darting about again, using offensive language. She says she will do that to you, Wendy, every time I give you a thimble. But why? Why, Tink? Again, Tink replied, You silly ass. Peter could not understand why, but Wendy understood, and she was just slightly disappointed when he admitted that he had came to the nursery window not to see her, but to listen to stories. You see, I don't know any stories. None of the Lost Boys knows any stories. How perfectly awful, Wendy said. Do you know, Peter asked, why swallows build in the eaves of houses? It is to listen to the stories. Oh, Wendy, your mother was such a lo telling such a lovely story. Which story was it? About the prince who couldn't find the lady who wore the glass slipper? Peter, said Wendy excitedly. That was Cinderella, and he found her, and they lived happily ever after. Peter was so glad that he rose from the floor where they had been sitting and hurried to the window. Where are you going, she cried with misgiving. To tell the other boys. Don't go, Peter, she entreated. I know such lots of stories. Those were her precise words, so there could be no denying that it was she who first tempted him. He came back, and there was a greedy look in his eyes now, which ought to have alarmed her, but did not. Oh, the stories I could tell to the boys, she cried, and then Peter gripped her and began to draw her toward the window. Well, let me go, she ordered. Wendy, do come with me and tell the other boys. 
Of course, she was very pleased to be asked, but she said, Oh, dear, I can't think of mummy. Besides, I can't fly. I'll teach you. Oh, how lovely to fly. I'll teach you how to jump on the wind's back, and then away we go. Oh, she exclaimed rapturously. Wendy, Wendy, when you are sleeping in your silly bed, you might be flying about with me saying funny things to the stars. Ooh, and Wendy, there are mermaids. Mermaids with tails? Such long tails. Oh, cried Wendy to see a mermaid. He had become frightfully cunning. Wendy, he said, how shall we all respect you? She was wriggling her body in distress. It was quite as if she were trying to remain on the nursery floor, but he had no pity for her. Wendy, he said, the sly one, you could tuck us in at night. Ooh, no one has ever been tucked in at night. Ooh, and her arms went out to him. And you could dar our clothes and make pockets for us. None of us has any pockets. How could she resist? Of course, it was awfully fascinating. Peter, would you teach John and Michael to fly too? If you like, he said indifferently. And she ran to John and Michael and shook him. Wake up, she cried. Peter Pan has come and he is to teach us to fly. John rubbed his eyes. Then I shall get up, he said. Of course, he was on the floor already. Hello, he said. I'm up. Michael was up by this time also, looking as sharp as a knife with six blades and a slaw. But Peter suddenly sighed in silence. Their faces assumed the awful craftiness of children listening for sounds from the grown-up world. All was a still assault. Then everything was right. No stop. Everything was wrong. Nana, who had been barking distressfully all the evening, was quiet now. It was her silence they had heard. Out with the light, hide, quick, cried John, taking command for the only time throughout the whole adventure. And thus when Liza entered, holding Nana, the nursery seemed quiet its old self, very dark, and you could have sworn you heard its three wicked inmates breathing angelically as they slept. They were really doing it artfully from behind the window curtains. Liza was in a bad temper, for she was mixing the Christmas puddings in the kitchen, and she had been drawn from them with a raisin still on her cheek by Nana's absurd suspicions. She thought the best way of getting a little quiet was to take Nana to the nursery for a moment, but in custody, of course. There, you suspicious brute, she said, not sorry that Nana was in disgrace. They're perfectly safe, aren't they? Every one of the little angels, sound asleep in bed, listened to their gentle breathing. Here Michael, encouraged by his success, breathed so loudly that they were nearly detected. Nana knew that kind of breathing, and she tried to drag herself out of Liza's clutches. But Liza was dense. No more of it, Nana, she said sternly, pulling her out of the room. I warn you, if you bark again, I shall go straight for Master and Mrs. and bring them home from the party, and then... Oh, won't Master whip you, just. She tied the unhappy dog up again. But what do you think Nana ceased to bark? Bring Master and Mrs. home from the party. Why, that was just what she wanted. Do you think she cared whether she was whipped so long as her charges were safe? Unfortunately, Liza returned to her puddings, and Nana, seeing that no help would come from her, strained and strained at the chain until at last she broke it. In another moment, she burst into the dining room of 27 and flung up her paws to heaven. <laughs> her most expressive way of making a communication. Mr. and Mrs. Darling knew at once that something terrible was happening in their nursery, and without a goodbye to their hostess, they rushed into the street. 
but it was now ten minutes since three scoundrels had been breathing behind the curtains, and Peter Pan can do a great deal in ten minutes. We now return to the nursery. It's all right, John announced, emerging from his hiding place. I say, Peter, can you really fly? Instead of traveling to answer him, Peter flew around the room, taking the mantelpiece on the way. How topping, said John and Michael. How sweet, cried Wendy. Yes, I'm sweet. Oh, I'm sweet, said Peter, forgetting his manners again. It looked delightfully easy, and they tried it first from the floor and then from the beds, but they always went down instead of up. I say, how do you do it? asked John, rubbing his knee. He was quite a practical boy. You just think lovely, wonderful thoughts, Peter explained, and they lift you up in the air. He showed them again. You're so nippy at it, John said. Couldn't you do it very slowly once? Peter did it both slowly and quickly. I've got it now, Wendy, cried John, but soon he found he had not. Not one of them could fly an inch, though even Michael was in words of two syllables, and Peter did not know A from Z. Of course, Peter had been trifling with them, for no one can fly unless the fairy dust has been blown on him. Fortunately, as we have mentioned, one of his hands was messy with it, and he blew some of each of it on them, with the most superb results. Now, just wiggle your shoulders this way, he said, and let go. They were all in their beds, and gallant Michael let go first. He did not quite mean to let go, but he did, and immediately he was borne across the room. I flewed, he screamed, while still in midair. John let go and met Wendy near the bathroom. Oh, lovely. Oh, ripping. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. They were not nearly so elegant as Peter. They could not help kicking a little, but their heads were bobbing against the ceiling, and there was almost nothing so delicious as that. Peter gave Wendy a hand at first, but had to desist. Tink was so indignant. Up and down they went, and round and round. Heavenly was Wendy's word. I say, cried John, why shouldn't we all go out? Of course, it was to this that Peter had been luring them. Michael was ready. He wanted to see how long it took him to do a billion miles, but Wendy hesitated. Mermaids, said Peter again. Ooh, and there are pirates. Pirates, cried John, seizing his Sunday hat. Let us go at once. It was just at this moment that Mr. and Mrs. Darling hurried with Nana out of 27. They ran into the middle of the street to look up at the nursery window, and yes, it was still shut. But the room was ablaze with light, and most heart-gripping sight of all, they could see in shadow on the curtain three little figures in night attire circling round and round, not on the floor, but in the air. Not three figures, but four. In a tremble, they opened the street door. Mr. Darling would have rushed upstairs, but Mrs. Darling sighed him to go softly. She even tried to make her heart go softly. Will they reach the nursery in time? If so, how delightful for them. And we shall all breathe a sigh of relief, but there will be no story. On the other hand, if they are not in time, I solemnly promise that it will all come right in the end. They would have reached the nursery in time had it not been that the little stars were watching them. Once again the stars blew the window open, and that smallest star of all called out, Cave Peter! Then Peter knew that there was not a moment to lose. Come, he cried imperiously, and soared out at once into the night, followed by John and Michael and Wendy. 
Mr. and Mrs. Darling and Nana rushed into the nursery too late. The birds were flown. <laughs>